0: I was reading in my um, devotional time this week, and I was reading out of the book of Luke and le- reading in chapter 15, and I got to the story of the prodigal son, and, and I, I, I just started reading it, and just my spirit got excited, and I was like, man, I, is this God doing something for me? Should I preach this? What am I doing? And then I thought, well, wait a minute. Everyone has preached the prodigal son. What do I have to add to that? And then I thought about, wait a minute, I actually even preached this message before in this church. And so it was like three years ago, three years and a few months ago that I preached this. And I thought, man, I don't know. Do I preach it again? Do I preach it the same? What are you, what are you speaking to me, God? And so ultimately, I was led to this place where I am preaching this message. And, and as I looked back three years ago when I preached this message, this, this, this idea, this story, It's coming out a little bit differently. I've been through some things over the last three years, and uh, I've experienced some things as a pastor, as a father, as a man of God, as as a bivocational ministry worker. I've experienced some things over the last three years that have kind of changed and shaped my life pretty significantly, actually. And so as I started to write some things down, I then looked at the message I preached and said, oh, I'm preaching a whole different message. But I'm doing it under the same thought process. And so the title of our series for the next few weeks that will close on Easter Sunday is simply entitled, Welcome Home. Right. Yeah. Welcome Home. And so, uh, so part one of Welcome Home is we're going to talk, talk about for the next several weeks about this prodigal son and some things I feel like God has, has revealed to me. Nothing earth-shattering or nothing... That's revelationary because it's scripture and there's nothing new except the way that I'm interpreting or the way that I'm feeling about it. And even the way I deliver it might be a little bit new. And so let's read the story really quickly in Luke chapter 15. It'll be up on the screen if you don't have your Bible. Um, I read it out of the New Living Translation. And this is what the Bible says in verse number 11. He said, to illustrate the point further, so Jesus had been talking about lost things. He talked about a lost sheep, and he's talked about a lost coin. He's trying to get a message across, and so he says, to illustrate illustrate his point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons, A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. Here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant." Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for the son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now is found. So the party began. I love that story. I love the imagery of that story. I love everything that takes place in those verses of scripture that Jesus is writing, is speaking and, and teaching. There's something just powerful about that. One of the things that even jumps out at me as I'm speaking to you this morning, that's not even in my notes, so I'm going to go to that place, go figure that I would do that. But he said to him, when he, when his, when he returned to his father, he was greeted with a kiss, and he said to him, he, when he said to his father, I, am, I was sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer even word, worthy to be called your son. Notice the father did not even address the statement. No, he didn't. The father didn't even address the statement. Matter of fact, he said, quick, bring the finest robe in the house. Put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Matter of fact, go kill the fattest calf we have because we're about to party. Didn't even address the fact that his son had said, I am not worthy to be your son. Is anybody else? I don't know of anybody else, but my spirit right now is leaping because there was a day in my life that that's the response that I had from the father. And as a matter of fact, there are days in my life, there are weeks in my life that I still have the same response from the same father. The only thing that's ever changed is me because he never changes. And so even, and then the other part of that is even when that son was a long way off, the Bible says. His dad saw him. It was Here's the thing. Back then, they didn't necessarily have binoculars. They didn't have scopes. They didn't have ways to magnify distance as much as they do now. They figured out some things with glass and light, and so they probably had something. But my guess is the father didn't have anything readily available to him like that. So he, I think, here's, here's, here's how I would just guess as a father, that there was something in him that made him feel like his son was somewhere. And when he looked off into the distance and saw him a long way off, he said, you know what? I'm going to run to that. I'm going to run to my son. His son didn't even get all the way to him. The father came to him. There's this recognizing that takes place when you recognize your need for the father and you begin to come that way. You begin to step in that direction. He sees you while you're still a long way off and says, oh, here comes my son. Let me go get him. And so, man, there's just something powerful about that. And that's, that's just amazing. And so oftentimes, here's what's really cool, because oftentimes this passage of Scripture is preached. And I don't know that I have much to add to the preaching of this passage of Scripture that has not already been spoken. But it's preached pertaining to backsliders, people who once were with Christ but have then been lost. But here's the reality of that. The reality of that is that is actually not who Jesus is talking about in this context. He's not talking about the backslidden believer. He's talking about the Son. He's talking about his creation. He's talking about the one that is lost. And so if you're sitting here with Christ in your heart, this message is for you. But that's not who Jesus was talking about when he said, this is how the Father responds. He's talking about a people who need God. Something we just talked about in worship an awakening and outpouring of the Holy Spirit that draws men to him. Because the Bible says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And so if we lift up the name of Jesus, he's going to draw men to him. And that's what Jesus is telling. If we, if we understand the father as the one who chases the lost. And we want to get the heart of the father. Then we also should be chasing the lost. So a few of you get that. But here in the first parable in Luke chapter 15. The Bible says the lost sheep we learn about. The shepherd went after one out of a hundred. So he left the 99 to chase the the one in the parable of the lost coin we learn that a woman sought after the one out of 10 there's something to this if you if you get into your study a little bit and then in the parable of the lost son we see the father looking for the one out of 2 the one thing that is consistent is the father is chasing one all the time chasing one Whether it's one in a hundred, or one in ten, or one in two, he's chasing one. And so, but I don't want you to miss this fact. The father went to both of his sons. This teaches us truth that every life matters to God. In every context. Not just one out of a hundred matters. Not just one out of ten matters. Not just one out of two matters. The father actually went to both of his sons. So what you have to understand is your life matters to him, and just as a shepherd searched for the sheep and the woman for her coin and the father looked for his sons, God's glory is seeking you today, even while you are a long way off. Because here's what I know, been doing this a little while, so I know a few things, not a lot of things, but I know a few things, and there's folks sitting in this audience that know more than I know, been doing it a little bit longer than I've been doing it, But here's what I've learned in my almost 20 years of serving God and preaching the gospel is that God still chases one, and that just because we're all in church doesn't mean that we're all have been caught by God. Just let me just be real for a minute if I can. I've said this before. I'll say it again. You sitting in church makes you a Christian or a believer. Or on fire for God as much as you standing in your garage makes you a Ferrari. Makes no difference. Matter of fact, if, if, there, if, there, if there'd be an illustrative point of the moment when Jesus comes back. Saddened to say that part of his church probably still would be here. If he came on a Sunday morning, part of the people worshiping would still be here. If he came on a Sunday morning, I believe, and sad to say, there'll be pastors still standing and preaching When some of his congregation disappears. God's always chasing one. And you've never arrived. You've never accomplished what God wants you to accomplish. Until he's caught you. That one. So I don't know about you. But there's a a great movie that we've all seen. And I think most of us have seen it. If not all of us. It's an old movie called The Wizard of Oz. And it's filled with a story of a young girl who wanted nothing to do but get away from home. The beginning of the movie was all about going home, getting away from home. I'm going to run away. I'm going to do my... And she got upset and she runs away with her little dog. And then as the movie shifts, the rest of her movie is about getting home. And here's what's interesting about that. At the, at the end of the movie, we find out that she's had the power to go home all the time just by clicking... Her heels together. Why is that relevant? You have the power to come home to God all the time. It's not Him, it's you. As a matter of fact, it was even spoken in our time of prayer this morning that where there are times we don't allow God to draw us to Him. Because there's other things that we prefer, there's other things that we like, there's other things that we want to have. We don't necessarily allow God to pursue us or draw us. Back unto himself. And so when God is chasing the one, there's always, you always have the power to come home. The power lies with you. And so in this parable, Jesus is telling the story of this young man who couldn't wait to get away from home. He couldn't wait to run away. He couldn't wait to live on his own. He couldn't wait. Anybody ever have a teenager in the house before? You ever heard that? Well, when I turn 18, Let me tell you what I'm going to do. And my response is simply don't let the door hit you where the good Lord split you. Because you're going to figure it out and they're going to come back. I am that teenager. I said all those things. And I left my home because, hey, after all, I want what I want. So I left my home to go do what I wanted to do. And let me tell you what happened a few years later. I was back in my home, and the condition of me being back in my home wasn't so good. I kind of had, I had no job, I had no car, I had no money, and then when I got some, I got a job, and I got a car, and I got some money, I threw it all away, they took my car away, I lost my job, and this was me knowing everything, and say, I can't wait to leave this house. And here I am back in that house, still struggling to figure it out. Met this fantastic woman. rest is history. But I, I, I was a mess of a son in that moment of my life because I felt like I knew everything. And that's not just a teenage thing. It's a people thing. We all know better than God what we need. We all know better than God. What our plan in our life should look like. And so that's what keeps us from Him catching us, not chasing us, because He's forever pursuing us, but it keeps us from embracing that pursuit. And so my question is always, why? And so, in, in that idea, a question of why, I think I want to turn back to and understand. How we were created. Because I believe in understanding how we were created will answer the question, why? So let's look at why leave home today. It actually goes all the way back to our creation. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. The Bible says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, this is the, and, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. So at creation, man became a living soul. So your soul—we were created in three parts. So you, people, have heard this preached before. I've said this. I've preached this. But we are created in three parts: we are spirit, we are soul, and we are body. That's how we were created. God created our spirit to relate to Him. He created the body to relate to His creation. But here's the interesting thing: He created the soul to be able to relate to Him. And the creation. That's how we are in our makeup. That's how we are created. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, the spirit died. The ability for the spirit to stay connected to God and relate to God no longer existed. Because sin was brought into the world. And so with that, sin has disconnected us from God, the spirit of God. And so now we have to have this this gap, this bridge of the gap between our flaws and our sin and a perfect God. The Old Testament did it with sacrifice. And offering and, and giving unto God. And the Levite priests who would be the ones facilitating that sacrifice. And, and that was the Old Testament way. And then in ushers a new, a new time and a new season. And Jesus Christ goes to the cross and suffers and dies. And he becomes that, that, that bridge between us and God. And, and the only way to the Father is through Christ. So there's this bridge that we now have access. But it... it the spirit lost its ability to stay connected. Matter of fact, the Bible says that our spirit is dead. Ephesians 2 says us that while we are, we're dead in our sin. So until we dedicate our lives to Christ, until we give all of us to him, we're dead in our sin and we are, our spirit cannot be relating to God. That being the case, we are relating to God with our soul. And let me tell you about our soul. Your soul is made up of three parts. There's a lot of three parts in Scripture. Our soul is made up of three parts. It's made up of our mind, our body, and our will. All right? Our mind, our our mind, our will, and our emotions is actually our soul. Our mind, our will, and our emotion make up our soul. We have relegated our experience to God through what we can reason in our own mind. Let me say that again. So we have relegated our experience with God, through what we can reason in our own mind. Hence the reason why there are a million denominations of churches. Because each person is relegating what they know through their own minds. So here's the reality. I got no issue with denomination until denomination causes disunity. Because there should be unity in the body of Christ. When a denomination causes there not to be unity in the body of Christ, then a denomination has an issue. And when a denomination has the issue, it's more the people of a denomination have an issue. And there are all kinds of those in this world. So we're not going to preach anti-denomination because that's not me. But the reality is we begin to relate to God and our experience with God through what we can reason in our own minds. Often what we feel in our own hearts and what we experience in our own choices. And that's how we reason God. But, and that's not necessarily a bad thing except that that's the only way we reason God. And since that's the only way we reason God, we find ourselves oftentimes pretty lost. I don't know about you, but I, I've done this quite a bit. I've read several passages of the scripture that I feel like don't really seem true about me. I don't know if anybody else has had that, but like when I read like 2 Corinthians five seventeen, for example, and the Bible says this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. I'm thinking, does that really apply to me? I don't know some decisions and choices I've made the last couple days. I don't know if that, that really, the old life is actually gone. Sometimes the old life likes to rise back up in you. So I don't know if that actually applies to me from time to time. And then I look at this one, Romans 8.37. says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that preaches well and that gets people shouting amen all that well. But uh, again, there's some things in my life that I've not necessarily conquered. There's some things in my life that maybe on Monday I'm, I'm strong and I'm tough with, but on Thursday, not so strong, not so tough. Thank you. I'm glad I'm not the only one. Now I can preach. Or I read 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, and no one who's born of God will continue to sin. And I start to wonder, does any of this fit me? Does any of this apply to me? Am I, am, I, am I messed up? Is there something wrong with me? And then the reality of the answer to that question is yes, I am messed up. Yes, there is something wrong with me. Each day I fall short of the glory of God. I was born into sin, and sin is something I will fight until I die. But I can't fight it alone. And I'm thinking, no one is born of God will continue to sin. I'm thinking, how is that even a thing? Show me someone who doesn't sin. Because I'm, I'm wrestling when I look in the mirror, I don't see that someone. And so let me get back to the reason why I would even leave home in the first place. Because here's what happens. Upon that meeting and that introduction with Christ, upon that acceptance of Christ as Savior, upon that dedication of my life to Him, my spirit is a new creation. I have been saved. If you have notes and you have your notes, that's one of the blanks, the very first one is your spirit is a new creation. You have been saved. You confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart. You have been saved. Every word in Scripture that references salvation with a past tense to it has to do with your spirit. Let me let me teach you a little bit of Bible study for a second, if I can. When you open up the Bible and you begin to study it, and you start to see where it references salvation in a past tense, He's talking about your spirit. It's been saved. You've been redeemed, you've been justified, you've been forgiven, you have been accepted by the creator of heaven and earth. But here, and I've said this before in a little bit different context, then we move on to, so your spirit is saved, then we move on to your soul. Your soul that's made up of your mind, your will, and your emotions. Guess what that is? is being saved every single day. Your mind is being saved. Your will is being saved. Your emotions are being saved. Every day, every single day, God is redeeming those, those, those parts of your soul. And he is not going to stop redeeming those parts of your soul until the day you meet him. Because that's, that's, that's how it's designed. We're trying to relate to God, a perfect God, with an imperfect soul and think that we're getting somewhere. When the reality is all these scriptures apply to us. Yes, I am saved. Yes, if I am, if I am in Christ, I sin no more. And all these things, that's all a point of God saving my soul. That's why the Bible, one of the most important things about salvation is when he says, is for each man to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Let me tell you something really quickly. I can absolve you from a lot of weight. It is not your job to work out my salvation. It is not my job to work out your salvation. It is your job to work out your own salvation. So when you start trying to work out my salvation, we start to have some issues. Well, that pastor said, sucks in church. He's not saved. I'm being saved. You're right. My soul, my mind, where does my speech come from? My mind. So when I say something that offends you, guess what? God is working on my soul. Don't try to work out my salvation for me. I'm going to be all right. I'm working it out. You work out yours, I'll work out mine. That's the point of scripture. It's for each man. But here's how you work it out: you work it out with fear and with trembling. What does that mean? With awe for God and respect for God, and with a little bit of like, oh, I don't want to be caught out there in sin because the Bible tells me, All oh, my sin will be made in the lights known in the lights of heaven. How would we like that? If you're sitting here today, how would you like to walk out of your house one evening? And it's these beautiful stars in the sky, and they spell out your sin for the rest of the world to see. I don't know about you, but that's not something I'd want anybody to know. So let's, let's, let's concentrate on the fact that our soul is being saved, and in your body, we'll be saved. This is how we're created, spirit, soul, and body. Your spirit is saved once you've dedicated your life to Christ. Don't get it twisted. You're a good person ain't getting there. Jesus said, "Don't call ain't nobody good but the Father." So we can get rid of that real quick. Just because you're good, don't get you there. Matter of fact, I think we'd be surprised about the bad folks that are going to be there, or at least the people we say are bad. So your spirit is saved. Your soul is being saved, and your body will be saved. That's when we gain our glorified body when He calls us home. So I I look at it like this, let me take care of the temple as much as possible, because eventually it's going to be a whole lot better off, and so maybe I I, I enjoy a donut more here and there, or a little bit more food, or something that I enjoy, try not to go overboard, but I know eventually my glorified body is coming, it's going to look a lot, lot better than this. Hard to imagine, but yes, it will. (laughs) Just being funny, come on now. Lighten up, folks. But here's what you have to understand. that when I, when I start using that word saved and salvation, it's the Greek word sozo, S-O-Z-O, sozo. And it literally means to be made whole. To be made whole. God doesn't just desire to save your spirit. He desires to save your soul along with your spirit to make you whole. Whole in your mind, whole in your body, whole in your spirit, whole in mentally, emotionally, physically. In every single way you can be made whole, that's his desire. That's the reason why he bore stripes on his back. So that we may be healed. And that word healed, similar word means to be made whole. That's his desire for all of us. I mean, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 39 says, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Psalm 90, 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. James 1, so get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word of God has planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your soul. God is after your soul. He is redeeming your mind, your will, and your emotions on a regular basis. He is pursuing you. He is the father that is pursuing his lost child. So what is all this stuff talking about? Your spirit is saved. Your soul is being saved. When I talk about your soul being saved, I'm not talking about eternal salvation. So don't think just because there's certain things that you read in scripture and you don't feel like that looks like you. That's not, we're not talking about your eternity here. We're talking about the quality of your life while here. Because when, when we allow God to redeem our souls and redeem our mind and redeem our will and redeem our emotions, we become much more effective in the kingdom of God for him. And that's what we're supposed to be. We're not, let me tell you, can I, we're not supposed to strive to be good employees or good bosses or good fathers or good husbands. We strive to be God's child. We strive to connect with him in ways that, guess what it does when we do? It makes us good employees. It makes us good bosses. It makes us good husbands and good fathers. Him makes this work. This working makes this work. When this is broken, this will always be broken. There will not be good fathers. There will not be good husbands. There will not be good sons. There will not be good bosses, good employees when this is broken. They'd be chasing from the next to the next to the next, seeking out. This, this, This young man in Scripture was so hungry, he was so got everything so twisted that he would even partake of the food the pigs would eat just to fulfill what he was missing. That's what we do. That sounds like, oh, I would never do that. I would question that. So the reason why he. Was leaving and left home was because he was having what I'll call soulish thoughts. Not spiritual thoughts, but soulish thoughts. He was coming from a place of his mind and his will and his emotions. And all of those things need to be renewed and redeemed by the Word of God. So let me talk to you about the soul for just a minute if I can. Number one thing I want you to get out of this message this morning and the idea of this story is simply that the soul is selfish. The soul is selfish. Before you give your life to Jesus, your spirit is dead. When you you are relating to him on the basis of your soul, his intention is that we relate to him through our spirit. And so let me talk to you There's a couple of Greek words that are in scripture that sometimes get twisted and moved around. So I want to talk to you about them for just a minute. I want to talk to you about the word logos and the word rhema. There's two Greek words for the word word. And so sometimes they get a little bit twisted. So I I want to bring some clarity to some of that. Because I believe in the charismatic movement. Some have preached the word rhema with some emphasis that's not actually biblical or scriptural as, as this experiential thing. And I'm going to get to that a little bit and what that looks like and what that means. And I believe many have interpreted this word as like the written word, but the, and the word logos is the written word. But the problem is it's not exactly what it means in scripture. So let me get to that real quick. In John chapter 1, verse number 1, I'm going to read the first four verses of John. And the Bible says, in the beginning was the word... And the word was with God, and the word was God. That word, word, written there, I know I'm saying the word word a lot. That word, word, is the Greek word logos. Why is that important? I'll tell you in a second. In verse 2, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not not anything made that was made. In verse number 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Then if you skip down to verse 14 of John... Chapter 1, he says, and the word was made flesh, same word logos, was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And verse 14, and the word was made flesh, all the same word. So, to put it plainly, the word logos in this context, the word word in this context, you could replace it with the word Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Verse 14, and Jesus was made flesh and dwelt among us because Jesus is the Word. And so, when we try to connect to God with our soul, Our soul is selfish and wants to make Jesus what we want him to be. In the charismatic preaching, it's saying that I have got to have this this instantaneous spoken word in order for me to believe. And hence the reason why if any prophet ever comes to town, if any prophet ever has has a service, that service is packed out. Why? People are chasing the instantaneous spoken word of God, which is the word rhema. They're chasing it because to them, that's faith. To them, that's power. To them, that's what God wants is that instantaneous spoken word. And I'm never going to negate that because there's, a, there's, a, there's importance in the prophetic voice. There's importance and power in the prophetic voice, but not as to be chased. If you, if you, look, at, if you look at history, everywhere there was a, an awakening taking place. Anywhere there was this prophetic conference taking place, people would flood to that place. They would flood to that place. More recently in Lakeland, Florida, over the last like 10 years or so ago, there was this great awakening and this great prophetic voice coming and this powerful Holy Spirit-filled revival-type services, and people were coming from all over the world thinking they had to be in that place because that was where God was moving. And I'm not negating anything that took place in that place, but people chased it as part of their faith when the reality is They have Jesus and the embodiment of Jesus living in them. That they don't have to chase a word. They have the word living in them. When Jesus suffered and died on a cross, he sent the Holy Spirit to be comforter, to be convictor, to be the one that guides, to be the one that provides, to be that in us. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that upon that salvation day, the Holy Spirit resides in us. And if the Holy Spirit resides in us, that's whom Jesus sent, then Jesus resides in us. We don't have to chase the word when the word lives in us. All we have to do is chase the word. This word. The God-breathed Bible word of God. As we open it and, and look in its pages, healing takes place. As we get into the word of God, provision takes place because this is who I am. And if I flip back to some of the things I said before, as I am finding myself falling into sin, I can very easily say that I belong to Christ. I am a new person. Old, you got to go and you got to stay gone because you know what? I am more than a conqueror. I am the head and not the tail. I am the apple of my father's eye. He came after me. He left 99 and chased me. And because of that, that's all the word. That's not this, I don't have to chase this spoken word to get that word. It's already spoken, then written, now in me. And that's what we should chase. We should chase not the spoken word, but the one who actually spoke the word. That's who we should be chasing. But the soul is selfish. Because we think With our mind and our will and our emotions. And we make God about emotion. And we run to the place where our emotions are gonna get met. And our mind and our will is gonna be met. The second thing I want you to get out of that part of it is the soul must submit to the spirit. The soul must submit to the spirit. When you give your life to Christ, your spirit arrives and makes this announcement and to say, here I am, I am in charge. And of course, our soul says, okay, sounds good to me. You can be in charge, no problem. I'll do whatever you say. That's how it works, right? The spirit arrives and says, here I am, soul, I'm in charge. I make the decisions. I move us where we're supposed to go because after all, I'm the one connected to God. So I'm in charge. And the soul just blindly lays down and says, sure, you be in charge. I'm tired of being in charge. That's not how that works. Thus ensues the battle. You ever put two, I don't know if you've ever seen this before, take two very dominant leadership type personalities who are very driven and who have to have their own way, put them in a room together and says, you guys determine who's in charge. Salvation may be questioned after those few minutes. Blows may be thrown. Words may be said. All kinds of stuff's going to come out because after all, they're both fighting to be in charge. That's the battle you face every single day. Your spirit and your soul are fighting to be in charge. And this isn't a fair fight. This is like a Mike Tyson of Andrew Holyfield fight. Or since I can't get the best of you, I'm just going to bite your ear off kind of fight. I'm showing some of my age. Some of y'all may not know that fight. I know a couple of y'all know that fight. But that's the fight you're fighting right now. It's not a fair fight. You're going to get punched in the gut. You're going to be kicked in places you shouldn't be kicked. And this is the battle between your soul and your spirit. But the reality is your spirit must, your soul must submit to your spirit. Your spirit says dedicate your life to Christ. Your spirit says deny yourself. Your spirit says turn the other cheek. Your soul says what's in it for me and I will cut you if you do that again. That's what it says. I'm just making it real for you. Your spirit says deny yourself. Turn the other cheek. Take up your cross. The soul says what's in it for me and if you come at me, come at me, bro. Let's see what's up. That's what the soul does. That's the battle every single day. This is why you have to feed the spirit. You cannot feed the soul, you have to feed the spirit. Look at what you read. Look at what you watch. Look at what you listen to and ask yourself Am I feeding my spirit? Because after all, if you're not feeding your spirit, you are feeding your soul. Because you're not starving. And that's obvious. The sin in the world suggests that we aren't starving. We're feeding ourselves something. But what are we feeding ourselves? What are we watching? What are we listening to? Let me tell you, my, my, my mistake as a man of God, as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, has been I have from time to time fed my soul and not my spirit. By what I listen to, by what I look at, by what I Embrace into my heart and life under the guise of, well, you know what? It's really not all that bad. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's all that good either. And well, it doesn't, it's, you know, it's, music is the one for a long time that tripped me up. And, and, and remember, how I told you the life that's submitted to Christ, it, it, it just doesn't sin anymore, right? Throw some music at me and I would tell you otherwise. Because there's some stuff I used to like to listen to when I was young that I don't listen to any longer until it pops up on the radio. And then all of a sudden, songs I haven't heard in 15 years, I begin to sing. And then I get to some words that I had forgotten were in that song. And I'm like, oh, man, what did I just do? That's the battle of soul and spirit. But if you feed that soul... Your spirit's going to stay dead and continue to die and continue to die a painful death. But if you feed your spirit, it will consume your soul. Yeah, you're going to make some mistakes. Yeah, you're going to fall. Yeah, you're going to fail. But that's why I believe it's so important to expose our children to Jesus so that when they are older and they do not have to experience 20 to 30 years of their soul being in charge. Because let me tell you, just because you expose them to Jesus doesn't mean they're going to always take all of that. But the Bible says, raise your children in the ways of the Lord, and when they are older, they will not depart. So the person who says, I'm going to let it be my children's decision to serve God, can I tell you something? And Wrong answer. Your children aren't even old enough to make a decision. They're not even wise. As a matter of fact, scientists would suggest that until you're 25 to 27, you're not even thinking properly. You're not fully developed in your brain yet enough to make all of those decisions. Can you imagine that at 27? I made a lot of bad decisions up to 27. Anybody else? I got married. I married. (laughs) I had children. Right? That's what scientists say, that this isn't even fully developed until I'm after 25 to 27. In men, I'm say, suggesting that might be 35 to 37. That's why I do. I refute that. I'm, I'm developed. I'm 42. I'm good, right? Not so much. But that's why it's so important to feed, to, to introduce our children to the ways of the Lord and let them feed, begin to learn how to feed their own spirit. Because I don't know about you, but I did 24 years without Christ. And I have a am paying for a lot of those 24 years now. And so if I can just eliminate just one of those things for my children, they're better off with that. And that's what we ought to be doing, feeding our spirit, paying attention to what we put in. I got to move. Even David in Psalm 131 verse 2, he says, Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. David knew that his soul was what could be causing him problems, so he quiets the soul. He weans it off of the milk and starts giving it something. 1 Corinthians 3, chapter one and two, verse number 1 and 2 says, Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. Whew. That's pretty indicting right there. you catch that, what Paul said? He said, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would spiritual people. He's saying, y'all ain't spiritual So I can't talk to you like that. I had to talk to you through you, though you belong to this world or as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And he went on to say, and some of you still aren't. Hebrews chapter five says, you have been been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. Let me help you here for a second, all right? This is going to gonna wreck some of you, and it's going to anger some of you, and that's okay. I can, I can apologize and counsel with you later. Some of y'all have been sitting here so long and have not spoken a word about the word to a single person. You're still just sipping on a little bit of milk. You can't even digest anything stronger or heavier. And you think, oh, well, I'm just not ready, or I just don't know. Let me give you the idea of a man named Paul who was a religious leader who crucified Christians, who hated Christ, wanted to put everybody in jail. He met Jesus on a journey on a road to Damascus. He was blinded by Jesus, and then three days later, his eyes were open, and he began, to what? Preach, boldly. not just preach, but preach boldly. Can I ask anybody in here? Have your eyes been open to Christ longer than three days? Then why are you still drinking milk? Why are you not preaching the gospel? Why is your Facebook littered with everything else but the gospel? Why are you on your job cowering in the corner when you have the truth in you? All right, I'm going to get off that one before you hate me. Verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 5 says, For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. If you're sitting here and you're still living on milk, you don't know how to do what is right. Number three, the last thing I want you to get, worship team, come and get set. I'm going to move through this quickly. So the soul is selfish. The soul must submit to the spirit. And last, the soul must die. The soul must die. You will never win this battle if you do not kill the soul. So uh, the question I think some of you might ask would be like, do you mean I have to kill my mind, my will, and my emotions? Yes. Yes, you have to kill them. Let me tell you why. So they can be resurrected with Christ. Your soul has to die so that it can be resurrected with Christ. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 says, For the word of God is alive and active Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You have to look at these two passages of Scripture and wonder, what does the verse 13 have to do? Verse 12, there's an important word that we have to understand, the original language in verse 13. The word there is the word open. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered. It is open. It is laid bare. That word literally means, ready for this? This is what it means. On the battlefield, that literally means the neck of a victim is pulled back. His throat is slain to the point that you can see what's inside. That's, gra- that's graphic. But that's the word. That's what it means. It's the back. Of, it means the bend back of the neck of a victim to be slain. To be exposed and in the bending back. So it's like this. When I do this, you can see all of this. Makes it real easy to kill on the battlefield. That's The word, it's supposed to open us up like that. And when it opens us up in that way, our soul can then submit to our spirit and the soul can be resurrected. Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it but if you give up your life for my sake you will save it and what do you benefit if it, gain, it benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul is anything worth more than your soul this was a message of christ continually to deny yourself take up his cross Paul even echoed it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he said, "I die daily. Soul has to die every day. If you come to Christ truly sincere, then you are saved. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. That's the Bible. Don't argue with it. Just accept it. But your soul is what's being saved. It's being converted." If you want to live this victorious, powerful life, you'll submit your soul to your spirit. You'll die to yourself daily, and you'll hear these words, welcome home, my son.